0: As I said, we've been in a series called I'm In, I'm In, and it's a little bit of a play on words, I'm In, and each week we're talking about different ways that we are in. The first week we said we're, I'm, I'm invited, the point there is you're invited into the family of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the reality of the gospel, here's the short concise summary is this. We've been we've been talking this for several months now, but here it is. Bad people can be made right with a good God through Jesus Christ. It's very simple. Here's the reality. We're all bad people. Uh, We're all bad people. All of us have sinned, the Bible says, and all of us need to be saved. But the beauty of the gospel is that you can be made right with God A good God who loves you enough to send his only son to die for you. You can be made right with him through Jesus Christ. And through Christ, you are invited into the family of God. So we said we're invited, right? And secondly, we talked about how you are an invaluable part of the body of Christ. Each of us, God has gifted each of us in some unique way. Um, you know, maybe you have construction gifts and the Lord might want to use that in Lebanon this summer. Or maybe you're a, you're a nurse or a medical professional. You have some kind of profession that God may want to use in the, later in the fall. Whatever it is God has gifted you with, those are talents as well as spiritual gifts. He wants to use it for His glory. The Bible talks about how we're a part of a body and each part is unique. Hand, foot, nose, ear, eye. Each part is unique. And one can't substitute for the other. That means that you are an invaluable part of the body of Christ. All right? Last week, um, we talked about how God wants you to be influential. To be an influencer. In your circle of influence, how are you influencing? We looked at the, the story of the woman at the well and, and how God used this uh, an unbelievable person to be an unbelievable missionary, right? I mean, of all people, to win her city to Christ, this, this is a surprising missionary. But the Lord wants to do that with all of us, to use our stories, even the things that we're ashamed of, like that woman, for His glory. He wants to use you for His glory. You're influential. And today what I want to talk to you about is I'm invested I'm invested. So, we're going to talk for a moment about that word, invest. Um, my wife and I, when we first got married, um, we wanted to kind of get on solid footing. And so, we, we thought through some different uh, investment things. We, we looked at life insurance. We looked at um, different kinds of little things we thought mature people, you know, grown ups do. Um, and so, uh, we, we, we ended up buying life insurance and some other things. and we we started throwing around this word invest a lot more often and I realized that she and I didn't really agree on the definition of what invest was. You know, I was thinking, hey, you know, maybe we should buy a rental house or something like that and invest, you know? And and she would say, Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. I think I want to invest in some new shoes. And I was like, I don't think invest means what you think invest means. You know, and I learned that it's probably a good idea to to come to a definition of what invest means. So here's what I would tell you. To invest means to use your resources for a future benefit, all right? So to to use your resources for new shoes is really an expense, not an investment, right? I mean, I'm not going to get many amens from the ladies on that, okay? But uh, what we're talking about is investing now for a future benefit. And when it comes to Christians, we think differently about this. And that's what I want to talk to us about today is to teach us what the Bible says about being invested in the kingdom. If there's one big truth I want you to go away with today, it's this. We are not made to store up for ourselves, but to pour out for our king. We are not made to store up for ourselves, but to pour out. For our King. And so the big teaching for today is this invest for eternity. Invest for eternity. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 6. Hopefully, you found your place in the Word of God. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word as we read together? I want to read beginning in Matthew 6 19. And we'll read through verse 24. your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Father, uh, this is your word. Jesus, you spoke these words, and so we take them with great authority and help us today to take the principles and the truth from this text and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to do an exposition of this text this morning So just teaching what's built into the passage And part of the way I want to do that is to go to some other places in Scripture where Jesus talks about this I I don't know if you know this, but um, uh, money, it's not a popular subject in churches I I don't teach on it a lot, but I don't know if you know this But um, almost half of Jesus' parables are about money Did you know that? Almost half of his parables are about money. Let me give you another shocking statistic. One in every ten verses in the New Testament is about money. One in ten is about money. Now, why would that be? Is it because God needs your money? Is it because preachers love to talk about money? Let me tell you, I don't like to talk about money. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward, right? Everybody's, can we just say this is awkward? It's awkward, it's awkward right? All right, All right. We're, we're over that now. Okay. Here's the thing. Jesus talks about money because he knows it can get a grip on your heart in a hurry. And Jesus wants your whole heart. And that's the reason he has to talk about the enemy. And I, I hate to say that, but the money has the potential to be an enemy. So as we talk through this together, I, I want you to know my motive is this. It's to liberate you. Not to put you in some kind of guilt-ridden bondage to give more. That's not the goal. The goal is to liberate you from the bondage of uh, thinking that money is your God. It's not. All right? That's our goal. So let's just walk through the text. First thing we see here is that Jesus demands our treasure Jesus demands our treasure. I'm going to flesh out what I mean by that statement, okay? What I mean is that He assumes the authority to tell you what to do with your stuff. I don't know if you see that, but listen to how He talks right at the beginning of our text. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. That is a demand. It's a command straight from the Son of God. And it's not a suggestion. It's not a, you know, hey, consider this as a good option. You know, this, just just think about this. Not a suggestion. This is a command from God himself. And he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. So Jesus demands our treasure. Don't store up treasures on earth where things don't last. And he talks about where moth destroys, rust destroys, thieves can break in and steal. These are, this is temporary right here. You have no control over keeping it. Isn't it amazing how easily deceived we are? Like A lot of our lives are spent in the getting, the acquiring, and then the securing of our stuff, right? We spend a lot of our time making money and then trying to keep it. And what Jesus is saying is, that's kind of futile. You can't store it up. It's, it's, you can't take it with you. Right? Somebody said, uh, I've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul trailer behind it, right? It's just, you can't take it with you. It's, it's going to perish. It's temporary. And Jesus is giving not just advice here. He's commanding, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where things don't last. So, a wise investor, he says, is not short sighted. You're not just thinking about the now, you're thinking about forever. Jesus does some teaching on this in Luke chapter 12. If you'd like to find your place with me in Luke chapter 12, um, here's what happens. Jesus is teaching, and um, A man comes along and just interrupts his whole train of thought with something way off the mark. In Luke 12, um, beginning of verse 13, someone in the crowd says to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So apparently, um, a father had died and an inheritance was being distributed and you got some siblings fighting over it. This is pretty common, right? A lot of families argue and fight about stuff that's left to them and uh, it, it's, it's sad. So how does Jesus respond to that, right? He, he actually doesn't get into the minutia of it. He's like, who, who made me a judge over this issue? I'm, I'm not a judge over the issue, but he says, but I will tell you the problem of your heart. And here's what he says. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Now listen to this statement. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's pretty strong, isn't it? It's a push back against the idea that, you know what, if I get more, if I keep more, that'll that'll make me something. I'll be something. Um, I don't know if you recognize how vulnerable your heart is to this, but I'm telling you, my heart is incredibly vulnerable to this temptation not just about money for me it's really about stuff um, right now the temptation is um, I'm trying to get rid of a few older clunky vehicles and get one uh, reliable truck I'd really like to have right and so I've been kind of looking shopping for a truck and I'm constantly having to push back against the idea that if I just get a new truck oh life will be good life will be so good if I just had that truck Right? I don't know if you feel that way. Maybe it's that big screen TV or that new whatever. Uh, my life will be better if I just have. And Jesus says, no. Life does not consist in the abundance of your stuff. And then he tells a story. He tells a story about a rich man who's a farmer and his land produced plentifully. So he had a huge crop. And he looks around and he's like, oh man, this is awesome. But my barns are not big enough to hold it all. What am I going to do? And he starts having this conversation with himself. And then look with me at verse 19. He says, I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. What he decided to do is to tear down his old barns and build some bigger barns so he could hold more of his stuff. And then he says to himself, this is a great plan. Now I can just relax, eat, drink, and be merry. There's nothing wrong with that if there's no God and if there's no resurrection. I don't know if you catch the words, eat, drink, be merry, the Apostle Paul uses that exact phrase in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, let's just eat, drink, and, and die. And the reality here is, if there is an eternity, then that's foolish. And that's exactly what Jesus says. God steps into this parable, this story, and God says to this man, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you've stored up or prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now that phrase, rich toward God, what in the world does that mean? That phrase, this is the only time in the Bible it's ever used. What does it mean? Well, thank goodness Luke is going to explain what it means later. And this is what it means from Matthew 6. You know, Jesus gave that demand, that command about our treasure. Don't store up treasures on earth. But then here's the the follow-up command. What was it? The positive. Store up treasure where? In heaven. So I want you to listen to what Luke says later in Luke 12. Look down with me at verse 32. By the way, this is one of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible. Luke 12, verse 32. Look at what it says. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now listen, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, that's straight. Uh, Luke and Matthew, man, they, these guys were on, on the same page when they're talking through this. So Matthew says, don't, don't store up treasures in heaven, in, on earth where moth and rust and thieves might ruin it. Instead, store up treasures in heaven. And Luke says, here's how you do that. You take the stuff God's given you, you sell some of it, you give to the poor, you bless those who need it, you, you, you give it away, you pour it out, you don't store up, you pour out. and in so doing, you fill up money bags that will not grow old, a treasure in heaven. So when Jesus says, store up treasures in heaven, that's what He's talking about. He's talking about using the resources, the time that your talents and your treasure, using your resources, to bless, not just to keep. So the value of your life is not in the abundance of your stuff. We are tempted to think that self-indulgence is good, that it will bless us, that our lives will be better when we do this. and. and and keep When we buy what we think we want and we keep for ourselves, we, we're tempted to think that's the way that works. And what Jesus says is that when you take good things and make them God things, it's trouble. Your life, the value of your life isn't wrapped up in your stuff. And so Jesus demands our treasure. So to store up in heaven means to pour out on earth. Um, Jesus said, just to just to quote him, he's quoted in Acts chapter twenty, verse thirty-five, and he said, "It is more blessed to give than to what." Yeah, that's Jesus's words, right? It is more blessed to give than to receive. I used to didn't believe that, you know. Christmas time came around and when I was a young young one, I, I thought, "What in the world?" And I like to receive, but as I've gotten older and a little more mature, I really love. Give. There's so much joy in putting a smile on somebody else's face. Um, and Jesus is right. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Second thing from Matthew chapter six. So if Jesus demands our treasure, and then we have this section of verses right in the middle that's really kind of strange. What does he mean? Is all this talk about an eye and lamps and light and darkness. What does that mean? And here's what it means. Jesus directs our vision. He's directing our vision. Now, the the key to understanding this whole section is wrapped up in the understanding of what does it mean to have healthy eyes and unhealthy or bad eyes? What does that mean? Now, now practically speaking, if you have good eyes, I mean, it enables your whole body to do things like me just walking or reading or, um, you know, whatever. That enables a lot of activity. My eyes being good. If my eyes are bad, I was talking to somebody this morning about one of my contacts, I know it's time to swap them out because this one is, um, I don't know, folding up on itself. and It's messing me up. When I go to read, I'm like, what is that, you know? If your eyes are bad, it causes all kinds of problems. Well, in a spiritual sense, here's what Jesus is saying. You could rightly interpret this to say it this way. Healthy eyes are generous. Unhealthy eyes are stingy. Now, in the context, that's what Jesus is talking about, is taking the things that he's blessed you with and using those resources to be a blessing. So in context, it it fits. Listen to what he says here then. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is generous, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is stingy, your whole body will be full of darkness. This is not the only place in the scriptures where there's this talk about a, the generous the generosity of the eye. Proverbs 22.9 9 actually says, he who has a generous eye will be blessed. So what does it mean to have a generous eye? Well, practically, here's what it means You're looking for ways you can give rather than ways you can get. The difference in a healthy eye and a generous eye is a healthy eye is looking for opportunities to be a blessing. Opportunities to take what God's given and pour it out rather than store it up. A a healthy eye is looking for someone to help, to bless, to give to. Looking for a need to fill. But a stingy eye is just trying to Step on whoever I've got to step on and climb my way up the ladder to get what's mine. The Bible talks a lot about the stingy eye as well. Um, I was going to share with you from Luke chapter 9, and I'll just keep this really short. You know the story, but in Luke chapter 9, you don't have to turn there. You can read over that later. Um, The the disciples are with Jesus, and there's a huge crowd that's gathered, 5,000 men. And then their wives and, and children as well, uh, the women and children. So many think it was probably about 18,000 people in this crowd. And he's teaching, and the disciples finally come over to him. It's getting late in the day, he's about to get dark, and they've been there a long time. The people are starting to get hungry. His 12 disciples come over to him, and they're like, Hey, Jesus, um, the crowd's hungry, and it's kind of getting late in the day. We're out in the middle of nowhere. Why don't we send them home and... Uh, And then we'll go to the store and buy ourselves something to eat. And Jesus responds. He says, no, you give them something to eat. (laughs) Can you imagine what Peter's thinking? He's like, well, that didn't go like we planned. Um, (laughs) Jesus says, no, you tell tell them to sit down and you give them something to eat. And what I want us to see there is that the disciples actually have this vision for, hey, we, we probably need to send these people away because we're hungry. They're probably hungry. We don't have, you know, what it takes to bless them. And Jesus is like, no, we're gonna bless them. We're gonna give. We're gonna we're gonna supply their needs. The disciples wanted to go get their own food, but instead, Jesus takes a um, a little Cat and D snack pack, you know, a little lunch uh, from a little boy, you know, uh, a couple of fish and some some little pieces of bread. And he says, let's just, eat. Lord, bless this. And then they they start passing it out. I'm thinking, you know. Uh, Andrew and Thomas Thomas, especially, don't doubting Thomas, right? He's probably like, hey man, don't get very much. Okay, we don't have a lot. They start passing it out, you know, and uh, lo and behold, they get to the end. And what happens at the end? They take up some leftovers, right? And how many leftovers did they have? They had basketfuls. Anybody remember how many? Twelve. And how many disciples are there? You think that was a lesson? I think each man came back with a basket full of food thinking, what in the world just happened? Jesus wanted to show them, when you have eyes to give, mm, the Lord has a way of blessing. When you have eyes to get, the darkness gets all in you. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. I want to show you, though, a specific passage because I read this just the other night and I thought, wow, that is That is pungently clear about a stingy man's eyes. So will you go with me to James 5 really quickly if you have your Bible? I want you to read um, with me from James chapter 5. This is painful to read, but it, it shows us the dangers of fixing our hearts on our wealth. So from James chapter 5, he starts this way, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl, for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches, now listen to, listen to the tie-in back to Matthew 6 of moth and rust and thieves. Listen to it. Your riches have rotted in your garments and are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in the day of slaughter. That's pungent, isn't it? Here's what the scriptures are telling us. The stingy eye, the unhealthy eye. How great is the darkness. That greed. This is the reason in Luke 12, Jesus said, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. Because it will take over your world. If you let the want and desire of your heart for things consume you, you'll step on whoever you've got to step on to get it. This is a warning from the Scriptures. It's a warning and we should heed it. Jesus directs our vision. Thirdly, Jesus deserves our worship. Jesus deserves our worship. Look back at Matthew 6 with me if you will. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus is actually warning us that the things that you own can actually own you. Listen, the things you own can actually own you. The word here for serve, no one can serve to masters, is not serve like waiting on a table. This word is slave. And what he's saying is you cannot have God as a master who is a loving fatherly ruler and money who is a slave driving You cannot have them both. They're both all-consuming masters. They both want your full devotion. And you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You will love the one and hate the other. Choose this day whom you will serve, is what Jesus is saying. He's saying you can't have two masters, so who's it going to be? Is it going to be God? Or is it going to be the gifts that God gives? That's the crazy thing about... This war between God and money is, money is a gift from God, right? The resources you have are just a gift from the Lord. And what we do is we take the good things and we make them God things. And that's when it all goes south. You cannot have two masters. Reminds me of a passage in John chapter 12. Where there's a woman who, her name's Mary. She's the sister of Lazarus. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11. And in John 12, they're sitting down to dinner at Lazarus' house. Can you imagine, okay, can you imagine a, a guy who was dead and stinky for four days, right? I mean, he, Martha said, oh, Lord, he stinketh. And y'all remember that? Uh, so a guy who was dead, so dead he was stinking, Right. And now they're sitting at, at his table at his home for dinner. I, I, this is a party, right? This is a great party. This man is alive and everybody's like, wow. The Bible actually says that there were a lot of people who wanted to kill Lazarus because he was an amazing testimony to the power of Jesus. But they were having dinner at Lazarus' house and Lazarus' sister is so overwhelmed with worship for her Lord that she goes and gets a pound of expensive perfume uh, expensive perfume it's, it's, it's an oil called nard and it's a, a pound of it. it's very fragrant aroma and she comes in and she breaks this jar and she starts pouring it on Jesus and she's washing his feet with her hair this is extravagant worship the Bible says that the smell filled the room right so everybody's like something's going on in here what is that and there's Mary at Jesus feet just worshiping Christ. There's another man in the story in John 12 who doesn't think her worship is appropriate. He thinks it's wasteful. And his heart, his eyes are unhealthy and his heart is in the grip of money as his God. We know that because it led him all the way to his death. He betrayed the Lord Jesus for just a little bit of silver. Just 30 pieces of silver is all it took for Judas. But Judas is in the room and Mary is just pouring out a pound of nard. Guys, this is a year's wages. That's what this bottle is worth. It's about $50,000 in today's money. And she's just dumping it on Jesus. Judas has an objection to that extravagant worship. You know what he says? We could have done something better with that. What? That's wasteful. Why are you doing that? We can't afford to worship Jesus like that. Do you listen to what's behind it? And underneath Mary's worship is this. If He's, if he's good enough to forgive my sin, if He's powerful enough to raise my brother from the dead, He's big enough to provide for my need. And Judas is saying, but but, but we could have done so many greater things with that. And John clues us into a secret in John 12. He says that that really wasn't Judas's heart because he was all the time sneaking his hands in the money bag. His heart was for the money. And what we see is that Jesus deserves our worship. In John 12, you see the the picture of self-indulgence. With Judas, in contrast with kingdom investment from Mary. What the world looks at and sees as wasteful, Jesus said, Leave her alone. She's she's chosen a beautiful thing. And what the world looks at as wasteful because their hearts are consumed with money, Jesus says, This is beautiful. This is a kingdom investment. Self-indulgence or kingdom investment? I want to share with you when the Lord shifted my heart in this area. I want to give you a specific and then uh, I'll give you just two quick takeaways and we'll be, we'll be finished. But I used to, um, I became a Christian very young and... Uh, my parents taught me what it meant to to give, to tithe. You know, they would on a Sunday they would uh, give us boys, um, you know, a quarter, a dollar, or something, and the plate would be passed around, and um, my dad would say, "Hey, put it in, put it in," and I'd be like, uh, and then he'd. Be, and you thump, oh, I put it in, right? And that was usually the way that went, you know. And, and he was teaching me to, to hold these things loosely, to give, you know, to give. And that was a great lesson. Um, but I, I kind of kept the, the, the quantity of my giving about the same <laughs> on up into my first job. I was still just tossing a dollar or two in the plate, you know. And whatever was in my pocket, whatever was convenient, never what was costly, we just don't see that with Mary. We really see that with Judas. The Lord finally got a grip on my heart actually when I got married. My wife is a much more generous person than I am. And she discipled me in this regard. And uh, when we first got married, she was a school teacher. And so um, we sat down, one of our first kind of finance meetings as a new as a new couple, I was like, whoa, we just came into some money. My wife's teaching school. We got some money now, you know? A whole new income came to the table, and then she says, "All right, so how much do we want to give?" And I was like, "Well, I mean, I, I'll have a dollar or two in my pocket." <laughs> and she's like, "No, no, no, no! Like, what can we, what can we give?" And we have a, a conversation where, early in our marriage, we just decided, "Let's just start with uh, the Old Testament principle of the ten percent tithe. Let's make that a starting point." And I remember thinking, "Wait a minute! Now, at that time, you know, we made X amount of dollars," and I remember thinking. I mean, 10%, that's pretty easy to figure. What? That's a lot of money. And I remember the kind of the conversation, I was kind of wanting to hide my heart of greed and being like, well, you know, I mean, we we probably need to be careful with our bills and, you know. And she was like, I really think we should just start here and be faithful to the Lord. And uh, I thought, well, that means like we're going to have to rearrange some things. You know, uh, can't sp- spend as much frivolously like we used to. Got to actually change my life a little bit. She's like, "Yeah, okay." Well, well, that means that like God's got to be first. If we're giving him the first ten percent, he's he's kind of got to be first. And she's like, "Yeah." I was like, "Well, um, okay, but but this means like." What if we don't have enough? This. What if at the end of a month or two we don't have enough money to pay the bills? We got. We got a mortgage. We just bought a house, you know. She's like, well, that's where you know we actually have to live on faith. I was like, faith. She's like, yeah. (laughs) Here's here's what I want to say. When Jesus is your supreme treasure, then the things of this life, you don't have to hold them so tightly. And the truth is the stuff that he blesses you with, you're not just looking to store up for 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 whenever for yourself. Instead, you're looking to pour out in a way of blessing. The the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter three, Malachi has gone through a lot of teaching in in this book, and he's actually rebuking an evil that he sees and then correcting with a, a promise or a word from the Lord as a prophet. And when he gets to Malachi chapter three, he actually says, um, will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me, God says. But you say, how have we robbed you? And he says, well, in your tithes and contributions. And he says, you are cursed. This is wild. But look at verse 10. The Lord says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby... Put me to the test. Now this is wild because God doesn't say to test him on anything else. Except for with your money. Isn't that amazing? God God says, in fact, he says, don't test the Lord your God. But in this verse, he says, in this way, put me to the test. Says the Lord of hosts, and I will, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour out a blessing. This is powerful. God is modeling for us what this is like. He's he's wanting to pour out as well. Now, the Old Testament tithe is not a New Testament law. So I want you to hear me. This is not something that if you don't tithe, you're sinning. It's not a law in the New Testament. We're under a new covenant. However, I want you to think with me logically about what Jesus does with Old Testament law in the New Covenant. Because what he does is he takes it out of a Pharisaical mind that says, "Here's the line, meet the line," and Jesus says, "Here's your heart. Mm, Let's deal with your heart." For example, Jesus says, "You've heard it said, don't commit adultery," Old Testament law, and he says, "But I say to you, if you lust after another woman in your what, in your heart, you've committed adultery." You've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I say to you, if you hate another brother in your what? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So here's the point I'm trying to make here is that Old Testament laws, we don't just sweep them away as if they don't matter. These things tell us a lot about the character of our God and they tell us a lot about how we ought to live. So this was a principle that when we first started in marriage, we began that way. We've incrementally increased along the way in our giving. And I would encourage you to do the same. But this is a good starting place. The tithe is a good starting place. And here's what it does for you. It it helps you to use the resources God's given you to put Jesus on display as your supreme treasure. Listen to what I just said. The things that God blesses you with, you have an opportunity to. To use those things to say Jesus matters more. Jesus is my supreme treasure. So here are the takeaways. First, Jesus is our treasure. That's it. He is our supreme treasure. You can either use your money to prove that or your money might get a grip on you and prove that wrong. Second thing. This is really practical. Start giving. Start giving. Jesus said, "It's better to what? Yeah. Give than to receive." And I want to encourage you in this way: Start giving. Start somewhere. Start somewhere. That tithe is a good starting point, but if you're in a, in a debt mess, then find a place. Find a place to start. OK? Here's the thing. Jesus is warning us, the stuff you have can have you.